Another great conversation with Linda Spilker, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. The Cassini Missions Project Scientist is back with more news from a mission that officially ended nearly four years ago. Data gathered as the Great Orbiter flew through the plumes above Saturn's moon Enceladus has now been shown to be consistent with biological activity below the tiny world's icy exterior. Linda has also rejoined the Voyager team as deputy project scientist, so some of her thoughts are in the space between the stars. There's much more in our latest conversation with Planetary Radio's most frequent guest. Bruce Betts is also thinking about Cassini, and he'll ask you about the spacecraft in his new What's Up Space Trivia contest. We're all getting tired of living in the virtual world, aren't we? Fortunately, as we stay safe, there are a couple of great upcoming events that will let you set sail with LightSail 2 and join Earth's smartest Martians. First up at 1 p.m. Eastern, 1700 UTC, on Saturday, August 28th, is the premiere of Sailing the Light, the Planetary Society's beautiful new documentary about our light sail. I hope you'll join Bill Nye, Bruce Betts, Jennifer Vaughn, and me right after the online screening for a conversation about the project. Check out the trailer at youtube.com slash planetary society, where you can also set a reminder. We'll head for the Red Planet next with our friends at Explore Mars. Their Humans to Mars Summit is free this year, but you'll need to register. I'll be co-hosting the stream and talking with a few of the outstanding guests and speakers. This one is September 13 through 15. You can learn more and register on the Explore Mars website. The link, along with many others, is on this week's episode page at planetary.org radio. Scroll down a bit on that same page and you'll be able to sign up for my free monthly newsletter. The August edition has just been published. Great space headlines await you in the August 13 edition of the Downlink at planetary.org downlink, beginning with an explanation of why Perseverance came up empty-handed after its first attempt to collect a sample on Mars. The fault was in the crumbly rock, not the spacecraft. Two Venus flybys by separate spacecraft within 24 hours? Yes, it happened just as Bruce Betts said it would last week, on August 9th and 10th. The traffic jam included NASA and ESA's Solar Orbiter, followed by ESA and JAXA's Colombo mission to Mercury. And NASA researchers have used data from the OSIRIS-REx mission to provide a nearly 300-year margin of safety regarding near-Earth object Bennu. The worst odds come in the year 2182, when there will be a 1 in 2700 chance of a bump in the interplanetary night, so you can tell your great-great-great-great-grandchildren to breathe easy. Let's go directly to my conversation with Linda Spilker. We talked a few days ago. Linda, welcome back once again to the show. I have no idea how many times you have been my guest on Planetary Radio, but I do know I'm absolutely confident that you have been heard more than any other guest, probably a record that's going to stand for a long time. So uh, once again, welcome back. 
it's great to be back, Matt. Thank you very much. We've spent virtually all of these previous uh, sessions talking about Cassini, for which you continue to serve as project scientist. We're going to go in a slightly different direction this time, although we'll don't worry, we'll come back to Cassini, everybody, because it's going to be integral to some of the things that we uh, that we are going to be talking about. But as you pointed out to me when we were talking about this, uh, uh, pulling this together once again, uh, it's a big month, August of 2021, for the Voyager mission, particularly Voyager 2, a mission that you spent 12 years on before moving to Cassini, and you are affiliated once again. Uh, why is this um, a special time in the grand tour of the solar system? Well, we've I guess they finished the solar system now. Now it's a grand tour of interstellar space. Well, this is a special month because 40 years ago, on August 25th, Voyager 2 had its closest flyby of Saturn. And that's the same planet that Cassini circled for 13 years. So just a, a nice overlapping in the studying of this very interesting world. And so Voyager 2 was the second flyby of Saturn. And we learned a lot more about the Saturn system. And for Voyager 2, that was the time when the scan platform got stuck. Uh-huh. And we were behind the planet right at closest approach. And so in the intervening years between Saturn and Uranus, we figured out how to get Voyager scan platform working again to take really fascinating data at both Uranus and at Neptune. And there's an anniversary to celebrate regarding that uh, last uh, big world in our solar system, right? That's right. On August 26th, Uh, We flew by Neptune, and so that's another anniversary, and that was in 1989. So two big flyby anniversaries for Voyager in August. I think I was correct in saying that you are once again affiliated with the Voyager missions that you worked on so many years ago. Am I right? That's right, Matt. I'm now the Deputy Project Scientist on Voyager. I have the privilege and pleasure to work with Ed Stone who has been the project scientist throughout the mission. And what a wonderful feeling. It's almost like coming home, coming back to this mission where I first launched my career at JPL and literally went to my first launch watching Voyager start its journey, Voyager 2 in particular, into the solar system. And so it's really great to be back and to see just what Voyager is up to these days now that both spacecraft are in interstellar space. It turns out that Voyager 1 crossed the heliopause into interstellar space in 2012, and Voyager 2 followed in 2018. I think it's absolutely charming that now, 44 years after you got to JPL, just in time for the launch of uh, the spacecraft, uh, that you are back in your your old job, right, Deputy Project Scientist, and, and working with Ed Stone, one of the great planetary scientist and and human beings uh, uh, that uh, we have one of the one of the greatest I should say that we've had the the honor of hosting on planetary radio we, we need to bring him back again uh, pretty soon as well I, I can certainly see how this uh, would be very satisfying for you it, it is Matt I wasn't deputy project scientist when I first started I was just fresh out of college and I actually started working with one of the instrument teams the infrared instrument Team IRIS was the infrared radiometer team, and then came back as deputy project scientist. And what's interesting is that Voyager team went on to propose a Cassini infrared instrument as well. That was the composite infrared spectrometer. 
and I had enough years under my belt and education at that time that I actually was a co-investigator with the composite infrared spectrometer team. So I have a, a tie to Voyager through the infrared instrument as well. You know, that would have been impressive if you had gone directly from college to a deputy project scientist on uh, the grand tour of the solar system. But uh, <laughs> I sure would have, yes. So let's, let's talk about what Voyager is up to now, because you also pointed me to uh, a pretty significant uh, piece of research that has uh, surfaced recently because Voyager, both Voyager spacecraft, which we hope we're going to continue to be in touch with for a long time, right, are, are still doing great science. That's right, Matt. Both of them are still operating, but each year with a little bit less power, we're having to be more and more careful, starting to turn off certain heaters on the spacecraft and on the instruments to keep both Voyagers going. And if you think about it, the two Voyager spacecraft is the first time we've had in situ studies studying the local environment around the spacecraft in what we call the very local interstellar medium. And so now that they're outside the heliopause, we're studying the interactions going on, the, the plasma density, that very fine mist of ions and electrons that's in interstellar space called the plasma, and how what the effects of the sun still have out in the very local interstellar medium. It turns out that the solar wind, sometimes there are shocks from the sun within the solar wind that actually go through the heliopods. And we can see these shocks in the interstellar medium. And by looking at those, we can actually get the density of that plasma around Voyager. So the heliopause is now, we know, apparently not really the end of the sun's influence over uh, the space that surrounds us. That's right, Matt. It turns out that that influence continues on, and we'd like to see for just how far that influence continues. Right now, Voyager 1 is 150 AU from the sun, a little bit more than that. And Voyager 2, not far behind, is about 130 AU from the sun. And to put that in perspective, the outer edge of the Kuiper belt is at about 50 AU. So Voyager has gone huh. all the way across the Kuiper belt on out into interstellar space. And yet interstellar space, that's huge, the distance between the stars. Still got a ways to go before it gets out there beyond the uh, the Oort cloud, right? That's right. Yeah, you're talking light years, <laughs> a light year or so forth <laughs> at the edge of that. You know, I just I just remembered something, uh, another charming fact that was brought up by Alan Stern, principal investigator for the New Horizons mission, of course, uh, who talked on this show a couple of weeks ago about how they pointed New Horizons and took an image looking out from where New Horizons is now, considerably behind where uh, Voyager is, the two Voyager spacecraft, looking toward the section of space where I, I think it's where Voyager 1 is. Of course, it was far too small to see, but I still thought that was a fairly romantic notion. Did you, did you hear about that? No, I didn't hear about that, Matt. What a nice tribute. In fact, Voyager uses information from New Horizons to give us a warning of some of these shocks coming out from the sun. New Horizons, being closer to the sun, would see them first, and that gives us a few years' notice that something <laughs> might be coming our way. And uh, so it's, it's nice to have that interaction with New Horizons. That's fascinating. I had no idea that, that New Horizons was sort of acting as, a, as an early warning satellite for, for the Voyager spacecraft. That's right, Matt. It does. Let's pull it back into the solar system a bit. As you said, we're also celebrating 
uh, that uh, flyby of Neptune by Voyager 2. Still no missions planned to those uh, twins out there, those ice giants, Uranus and Neptune. I, I'm sure you were following when uh, uh, the most recent uh, interplanetary or planetary science missions were announced by NASA. Uh, we got two spacecraft now being planned for a, a visit to Venus, and we had both of those principal investigators on the show recently. Uh, nothing against them, of course, but you are, you are still one of those who very much wants to see a mission headed in the other direction, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. After having seen the Uranus and Neptune data returned by Voyager, it only seems natural at some point to visit one or perhaps both of these worlds to go back with a mission like Cassini an orbiter, perhaps with probes for the atmosphere, or maybe a probe to study Triton in more detail, Neptune's moon Triton, but definitely to go back and to understand these ice giants and be able to compare them then to Jupiter and Saturn. Uh, the moons, the quick glimpses we got of the moons around these planets were fascinating, especially the large moon Triton at Neptune. And to go back and understand not only the moons, but the ring systems that each world has and the planets themselves, because each one is so different. Neptune is releasing more energy than it receives from the sun. Uranus is not. Uranus is tipped on its side, uh, looking like a giant bullseye with its rings sometimes pointed toward the sun. And that was the configuration at the time of the Voyager flyby. So to go back would be so exciting and so interesting. We're in the midst of something called the Decadal Survey, and one of the outcomes or outputs of the Decadal Survey will be, what should our next flagship missions be? You know, we have Europa Clipper in its uh, stage instruments being built, the spacecraft put together. So after Europa Clipper, what's the next big planetary flagship mission? And I'm hoping it could be a mission to one of the ice giants, either Uranus or Neptune. I have a slight preference for Neptune just because Neptune has this fascinating moon Triton with geysers that we saw with Voyager on its surface and some hints that perhaps maybe Triton might have a subsurface liquid water ocean, hmm. very similar to Saturn's moon Enceladus and Jupiter's moon Europa. I, I want to give more evidence of how deeply you're involved in working with the outer planets because you co-chair something called uh, OPAG. Tell us about that. OPEG is the Outer Planets Assessment Group. Uh, we get the Outer Planets or community together twice per year, hold meetings, and discuss and get updates from currently flying missions, updates about ideas or proposed missions, and then we put together a white paper for the Decadal Survey with OPEG's priorities. And we really think that an ice giant mission should be a top flagship mission priority followed uh, maybe five years or so later with a mission to an ocean world like Enceladus or perhaps Europa to try and have a mission that could make measurements perhaps in Enceladus's case, you could fly through the plumes or directly sample the plumes, maybe land on the surface and get directly from these products coming from the ocean, what the ocean might be like uh, with Europa. Perhaps there are events on Europa as well. There is a an article written by my colleague at the Planetary Society, Jutan Mehta, uh, it's uh, a July 28th article at uh, planetary.org that, that goes into this a little bit and talks about uh, how they modeled this fascinating uh, work that was done by these researchers. They set out of 50,000 
simulated environment runs, because they basically built a model and then put different variables into it, about a third of those would have been habitable for those critters that live down around hydrothermal vents uh, here on the home world. Yes, it's fascinating. It's now starting to do, make these models and actually do statistical runs where you can look at if you produce conditions that are very similar and tweak them a little bit and make all of these runs, what do the statistics start to look like? The data behind this paper provides proof once again of something that we have talked about, you and I, many times, that Cassini is the gift that keeps on giving because this was based on that data that uh, Cassini gathered largely when it flew through those plumes. You're still the project scientist for the mission. Uh, it has to be rewarding to see this kind of work going on. Oh, oh, it is, Matt. Absolutely. As we get close to maybe the end of, uh, of this conversation, I, I just wonder, I mean, you, you have so much still going on at JPL, this return to the Voyager mission. You're a JPL fellow. Uh, you recently got the title Senior Research Scientist, so congratulations on that because that's, a, Thanks, that's up there in the science stratosphere at JPL and, and really any place. You've been at this for a very long time. Is it just as fascinating as ever for you? Yes, Matt, it really is because it's like you just around the next corner, who knows what we might find. Um, and it's just wonderful to be back on Voyager. And what's fascinating is that Voyager's power is degrading by about four watts per year. And so that means we're having to start to very carefully consider what to turn off. One of the first things that they did with Voyager is to turn off the heaters to some of the instruments. Here the temperatures would drop 40 or 50 degrees centigrade, and yet the instruments continued to work. <laughs> <laughs> and so we've now turned off several heaters, crafted that we can continue to get data, even with those instrument heaters off, that the, the power from running the instrument is just enough to keep everything working on the Voyager spacecraft. So what an incredible mission. We really know how to build hardware at that uh, place where you work. And when you consider that it's sending that signal across... <laughs> <laughs> all those many, many, many kilometers or miles. It's its all the more amazing. Linda, it has never been less than wonderful to talk with you on Planetary Radio. I'm so glad we had the chance to do this again. And uh, with your permission, we'll do it yet again sometime in the near future. Oh, absolutely, Matt. It's always wonderful to talk with you and, and chat about all these interesting topics that come along the way, whether it's Voyager or Cassini. My extended conversation with Cassini Project Scientist, Voyager Deputy Project Scientist, and JPL Fellow Linda Spilker is waiting for you at planetary.org slash radio. I'll be back with Bruce Betts in one minute. This is Planetary Radio. LightSail 2 made history with its launch and deployment in 2019, and it's still sailing. Hi, everyone. It's Bruce, Program Manager for the Planetary Society's LightSail Program. Your support made this happen. Now we need help to continue the adventure. Gifts in support of our extended mission will be matched up to $25,000 by a generous society member. Details are at planetary.org slash S-A-I-L-O-N. That's planetary.org slash sail on. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and planetary society publications on our social media channels. 
You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society who joins us every week at about this point in the show. It's Bruce Batts. Welcome back. (laughs) Come on. I need a little more enthusiasm than that. Hi, Matt. I'm really excited about doing Planetary Radio this week. We got some cool stuff. Well, there's always cool stuff. Prove it to me. All right. How about you look in the West in the early evening and see super bright Venus? And if that's not good enough for you, look over in the other part of the sky, over in that that east direction, and uh, you'll see a really bright Jupiter and above it to its right, yellowish Saturn. But wait, don't order yet. I can also offer you the moon hanging out near Saturn on August 20th and near Jupiter on August 21st. Is this a package deal? It is. It's a package deal. You get all the planets for one low price of awesomeness. All right, we move on, though. We move on to this week in space history. It was 55 years ago this week in the fine year of 1966. Lunar Orbiter took the first image of Earth from hanging out around the moon. You know, this came up when we talked with Andy Chaikin because we talked about the Earthrise image that everybody knows so much better from Apollo 8. And how, yeah, the lunar orbiter had already done it, but it meant so much more to know that a human was actually seeing that site and capturing it with his his Nikon or whatever, Hasselblad, whatever they gave those guys. That's a prettier, nice color picture, too. 1976, 45 years ago, Luna 24 returned samples from the moon. Robotic sample collection, last of the three flown by the Soviets. Yeah, and the last of uh, until uh, China did it. What last year or was it early this year? I forget. But anyway, uh, we're back in the business of uh, sample return, we Earthlings. Yeah. All right, we move on to random space fact. That was lovely. Thank you, Uranus's moon Miranda. It's a weird looking thing, but listen to this. It's got. Big old canyons from massive faulting that are as much as 12 times deeper than the Grand Canyon. But wait, once again, don't order yet. Here's the amazing, amazing fact. Miranda's low gravity and huge, large cliffs, if you dropped, as you would do, Matt, if you dropped a rock (laughs) off the edge of the highest cliff, it would take about 10 minutes to reach the foot of the cliff. I would do that, but a rock? That's so boring. I would drop um, a piece of pie, a, a piece bowling of ball. cherry pie, a bowling ball. I'd use a Hell, bowling ball. Yeah, why not? Bowling ball and cherry pie. We can do the classic Galileo Dave Scott on the moon experiment, but instead of a hammer and a feather, we'll use a bowling ball and cherry pie off Miranda's cliffs. What a plan. Party on. You beat me to mentioning the feather. I really wanted to get that in. Well, you edit the show. I mean, you can still do it. That's true. I could change everything. I'm in, I have the power. Shall we move on to the trivia contest? Oh, powerful one. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's entirely up to you and the editor. (laughs) All right. So I asked you to name all the Olympics for which an Olympic torch was flown in space. How'd we do, Matt? (laughs) 
Okay. <laughs> sorry, I, I didn't know we were really going to keep going through the whole thing. Yeah, sorry. That's the best part. It's really fascinating. A lot of listeners found this fascinating. I'm going to let David Mastardi of uh, California provide uh, the beginning of the answer with a little Olympic haiku. One small step for Torch, Atlanta, Sydney, Sochi, giant leap for sport. Nice. And I believe he's correct, but let me read the winner to you as well and then see if you confirm it. I am very pleased to say that Random.org chose uh, Claude Plymate. Claude, who is a, uh, a past guest on this show, uh, he and his lovely wife recently retired from the uh, Big Bear Solar Observatory, where we did some uh, an interesting planetary radio episode uh, a while back. Claude is also a regular listener to the show. He last won, he is a previous winner, won once before three years ago, almost exactly three years ago. Random.org has, has quite a sense of timing. Uh, he said <laughs> they were... <laughs> The games of the 26th Olympiad, that was Atlanta, 1996, Space Shuttle Columbia, STS-78. The games of the 27th Olympiad, a.k.a. Sydney, 2000, Atlantis Space Shuttle, STS-101. And the 22nd Olympic Winter Games in Sochi, uh, 2014, on Soyuz TMA-11M. Does that match uh, what you discovered? It did. And the, the last one went and hung out on the International Space Station. Yeah. And I read also went on an EVA. At least we heard that from many, many listeners. It actually brought the torch outside. I, it probably didn't stay lit. Congratulations, Claude. And so we are going to be sending you that fabulous Planetary Society kick asteroid rubber asteroid. Here's a new question for you. You've been hearing all about Cassini. Well, not all about it. It's a very complex mission. Tell me, how many orbits of Saturn did the Cassini spacecraft complete? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Would you accept a bunch? Uh, from you, yes. From anyone else, no. Well, there's some guidelines for you. At least we've given you a hint. <laughs> uh, you have. <laughs> have we? <laughs> <laughs> no, we have until, you have until August 25th, that's Wednesday, August 25th at 8 a.m. Pacific time, and get a load of this uh, prize. Our friend Thomas Romer, the guy behind ChopShopStore.com, where you will find all of the Planetary Society merch and a whole bunch of other good stuff, including uh, the Planetary Radio t-shirt, of course. He has a, a third round of his robotic spacecraft poster series underway. There's a Kickstarter for it uh, that you can get in on at uh, bit.ly slash spacecraft3. That's, you know, B-I-T dot L-Y slash spacecraft3. If you win this this one, then you in a couple of weeks will have your pick of any poster, any of the existing posters from the first two rounds, or the three new ones, which we can announce, will be Pioneer, Juno, and Viking. Now, those won't be ready until October, roughly. You can also pick one uh, from inventory. Those are, and it's a pretty good selection, too. Voyager, Mars Science, because he's kind of lumped together now, Curiosity, Perseverance, and Ingenuity. Sputnik, Mars Exploration Rovers, Opportunity and Spirit, New Horizons, Rosetta with Philae, and Galileo. 
get those entries in and uh, you might just win yourself a very cool poster. They're beautiful. All right, everybody. Go out there, look up the night sky and think about falling bowling balls and pie. Thank you. And good night. Cherry pie. That's the absolute favorite of everyone on Miranda. I'm sure you know why. He knows why. He's Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, who joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who span the solar system and beyond. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astro. Ad Astro.